It's bad when you like hear your your own breathing. <laughs> oh, that is really gross. Is that what I sound like? You do. You do. I believe you, you guys show you, up every week. You do the gym. It's really <laughs> terrible. Maybe I have like a deviated you're, septum I think or you're something. You're dying, actually. <laughs> This is No Politics at the Dinner Table. I'm Tony Biancasino. And I'm Amit Prakash. Tonight, we're going to drink High West Whiskey and talk about our hate for charter schools. Yes, you must learn. Right? Yeah. We hate them. We do. Okay, good. Yeah. I don't know anything about them. <laughs> you don't? <laughs> I, I think about them often, actually. Yeah, we hate them. Yeah, we're going to find out why... Um, They've got problems. I don't, I don't, I'm not. I'm actually. I'm kind of categorical about it. But maybe. Well, we'll wait before we introduce our yeah, guests. Yeah, but yeah, I want to yeah. put you. I want so so we can get to it. Okay. You hate them or, or like them? I really don't like them at all. But not hate. I mean, you can say it. You know, I tell my kids not to use that word, so <laughs> I try to not use it myself. Yeah, but they're going to use but it eventually. I, I really don't like them. Okay. Uh, I think they're bad for. Uh, well, they're. I think they're just bad for public education. Right. Uh, so. That's that's the issue. Well, did you uh, last night? Did you see Trump's tax returns? Sort of. What two did you pages. see? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was two pages. It was from two thousand five, and what it revealed was that he pays a higher rate than Mitt Romney. So, uh, oh, really? I don't know what the big deal. You know, the the big distraction. No. Meanwhile, he's this is this is a thing. I think you know this is what I was talking about. I think was it last week that a lot of the the sort of brouhaha around yeah. like the Russia connection, which I do think should be pursued, but the sort of hyper focus on it right. is it's a diversionary tactic from right. all the other stuff that they're actually doing and might actually try to sort of muscle through uh, while we're looking at two pages of tax returns that, you know, are basically, you know, meaning, I mean, come on. And, Tax returns when this guy we know he's a, such a horrible degenerate from anyway. 2005. I, mean, like, come on. I felt really duped. Well, I was yeah. like, I kind of, I can't believe I fell for it. I was like, <laughs> oh shit, bated breath. You're like <laughs> tweeting it, and you're like, not a joke. We have them. I'm like, they have last year. It's like right. you, you don't. If it's anything more than two or three years, you just have like some old stuff we're gonna talk about. Yeah, but you can't hype it up like that, and then you wait 20 minutes into the show to bring that bullshit out. I was furious. It reeks of desperation, actually. Meanwhile, you right. have uh, 25 million Americans about to lose health care coverage. Right. You got this idiot and all his other amazing stuff we could be covering, but we're country. And, and by the way, even if they had 2016 taxes and they showed he doesn't pay, no one would care that voted for him. It doesn't matter. So it's like you're chasing this thing when people, I think the health care is where he's going to get hit because you got Sanders flying around the country, basically getting all these coal miners that voted for Trump to be like, fuck, we're screwed. Right. And that, no one's covering that. Right. Except for, uh, what's his face on MSNBC who's doing the town halls? Chris Hayes. Yeah, but like no one's talking about that. Those things are amazing. Have you watched them? I did. I and? Did. I, he's, he's doing what politicians are supposed to do. You know, the, uh, Bernie Sanders. Yeah, but that's right? the that, fight we should be having. I is know, like I know. I agree with you. You're, you're preaching to the choir. I, it's... Uh, I don't know. I think the focus is going to be on how, I think this weird focus on how wrong Trump always is, yeah. right? That he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's yeah. ignorant, this, that, and the other. What the opposition, such that it is, doesn't understand, that doesn't matter to right. the people who back him. Right. If anything, 
it's been an asset. Uh, he openly said that when he, he was accused of not paying taxes, that he did it because he was smart. smart. <laughs> and then he got applause. So that's his backing, right? So if you think now somehow this big expose of the actual returns yes. is really going to undermine him, that's a fantasy, right? So the the focus should be on actual policy that's actually going to hurt people. Because yeah. guess what? People feel it when they get hurt. Yep. You know, the, the, your your schools are falling apart. Your healthcare is no, no longer even there. Yep. Um, you know, all that kind of thing is actually, um, it's going to be politically useful because it's actually real. Speaking of schools falling apart. Oh, yes. Nice segue. Yeah, you should have flipped it. <laughs> like, as you get better at this, right. you would have gone with, right. and schools falling apart, which right. actually brings us to why we're even here tonight. Exactly. You want to go for this? Mm -hmm. So um, we invited Ansley Erickson. Uh, welcome. Thanks uh, for having me. Yes, absolutely. So um, would you say a few words about yourself, what you do, and then we're going to throw some questions at you. Yes. Sure. I'm a historian. I teach at Teachers College at Columbia. Um, I research the history of schools in 20th century American cities. I'm particularly concerned about questions of inequality uh, by race and class. And um, I recently wrote a book about Nashville, Tennessee, and its 50-year story of school desegregation and resegregation. Name of the book? Making the Unequal Metropolis, All School right. Desegregation and Its Limits. It has a semi Title, okay. Subtitle, as you know. Of course, it, it has must. to. Yeah. Yes. And it's go. chicken and music culture. <laughs> in Nashville. It doesn't say hot chicken there's no in the chapter, title. There's no chapter on the cool part of Nashville. No, there is no hot chicken chapter. <laughs> no, I don't no. even think there's anything close to a hot chicken chapter. <laughs> That's for the second book, Tony. Calm Fair down. Enough. Calm down. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, so the first thing before we get started, I want to play you guys a clip here uh, just to tee us up. So... I want to see if you know who's speaking. You'll, you'll know who's speaking in a second. First time I've gotten to come back to this incredible organization since I've been elected to the United States Senate. Um, and uh, my experience over the years coming to this, to, to this conference, coming uh, to meetings, meeting some incredible folks who really believed in me when I was at the start of my career. Uh, there are some people in this room who really were the difference makers as I was climbing the ladder in Newark, New Jersey with a vision for transforming that city. The mission of this organization is aligned with the mission of our nation. This fight is so critical and so essential to who we say we are as a country. But I just want to encourage everyone here to stay faithful to the work we're doing, to stay determined, to stay focused, to not think of this world as right or left, but pull together to move forward on this issue. If we now continue in this way, continuing to pledge to each other our, our lives, our fortunes, and most importantly, that sacred honor, I know that in another decade, I will be standing here talking about Liberation Day for this country, that we've reached a point where every parent and every child has what should be their birthright a chance for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And essential to that is a great educational space, a cathedral of learning worthy of Americans. Thank you very much. John Stamos. <laughs> close, close. Um, what was it? The ending of Full House. No, it was actually... Cory Booker. Right. Cory Booker. But where? Where was he? So here's the question. He was at the American 
Federation for Children, which is Betsy DeVos's uh, large organization that is pro-school choice. Um, and he was the keynote speaker uh, mm -hmm. in 2016. Uh, so there he was um, praising this organization and all its work. He'd been there also in, in 2012, so that's why he was talking about him coming back and so on. So he's been a long backer mm -hmm. of this. And the reason I wanted to sort of put that out there is that he came out, you know, with fiery, you know, attack on Betsy DeVos when she was up for Ed Secretary. Um, and here he was, you know, praising all of the things that she's done. And I want to get into the things that she's done in a moment. But um, I wanted to ask you, Ansley, the, the whole sort of question about school choice. It's basically been bipartisan, hasn't it? Has it, you know, that it's it's not necessarily a sort of right-wing sort of plot to sort of privatize schools that there's been sort of both sides have been involved in this over time? Yes. So if school, especially if we're focusing on charter school focused mm -hmm. choice, yes, yes. Um, the, there has been, there have been a couple of decades of robust support on both the democratic and Republican sides. Yep. Okay. So no child left behind, which gets bipartisan support and sort of creates an opening wedge for competition focused ideas in mm -hmm. public school systems and um and the 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 um next iterations of no child left behind race to the top right essa uh, um, what every child succeeds mm -hmm. act um that's not right something every. like that every student succeeds act there it is <laughs> um those are all things that have drawn um bipartisan support so yes definitely okay um so so here's the question is that it's obvious that Cory Booker is somebody who's a consummate politician. So when 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 the wind blows the wrong way, he's going to denounce uh, what right. he's been doing right, for right. the past 10 years, first in New York and then, you mm -hmm. know, trying to push that in the Senate. Um, and he was always a big backer of Arne Duncan and so on. So that this this has been sort of his thing for quite some time. He's actually for vouchers. He's not just mm -hmm. for sort of pro-charter uh, schools, but he's for vouchers. So which brings us to Betsy DeVos. So I under, I kind of understand politically why he, you know, throws her under the bus because it yeah. makes sense in the moment, mm -hmm. right? Even though it goes against everything he's ever stood for, apparently. Um, but Betsy DeVos, I don't know if she's if you've come across her before that has she, she sort of penetrated into any of the stuff that you've, you've uh, researched, but... I was looking about some things that she's done in Michigan, mm -hmm. um, and I just wanted to ask you if this seems kind of like par for the course and how scalable this is. Uh, so she's, for those who don't know, she's the heiress um, of an auto parts fortune from Michigan. You know, auto parts, Detroit, all that auto parts. It's like Tommy boy. Yeah, exactly. She's she's Tommy girl, right? So so she's got a ton of money, um, and she's married to the heir of the Amway fortune. So together, they're worth about five billion dollars. Damn. All right? um, and within five billion. Five billion. Yeah, oh that's with a B. Um, and she's. Uh, a devout evangelical Christian mm -hmm. uh, has only been to Christian schools for both um, primary, secondary, and or all three higher education. Um, and she spent her time basically acting as a lobbyist, right? That that's that's she doesn't have any like teaching experience or anything like that. Um, and so her federation has poured tons of money into basically the the Michigan legislature to change the laws slowly over time. And this is what the Republicans are so good at. They're very dogged about, you know, let's you know start with the school boards, you know, that, that sort of approach. 
Um, and over time, Detroit has now has over 50% charter schools. Um, and it is the lowest performing school district of its of a city of its size in the country. Right. So and I'm just wondering. Um, and by the way, the only thing, the only city that really beats it out is New Orleans, where there's uh, I think there's like five public schools left. Uh, but I was just wow. wondering, is that just a correlative relationship that that the charters come, they take over and the sort of standards go down or or there's I mean I, I've heard mixed things so of course the charters are rah 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 that we're doing great and we do it so much better that's sort of their whole argument um, but I'm wondering if you know anything about you know different instances because Detroit is just a disaster story right right yeah so I, let's see there are a lot of there are a lot of questions and ways that we could go with this the, mm -hmm. the first question you know does the introduction of charters to a school system produce immediately the Detroit scenario? And I, the answer's gotta be no, mm -hmm. because um, charters vary tremendously nationally, right? So some states have laws that heavily regulate and constrain how many charters there can be, how they're governed, and other states, and Michigan is one of them, where it's, a, it's much looser. So um, Michigan has a huge, and Detroit especially, has a huge proportion of private charter operators right. rather than nonprofit operators. Right. So that's one distinction, and there are state, um, charter provisions where you can't be a for-profit uh -huh. corporation. You have to be a nonprofit. So that's one way that Michigan's different. Um, I read 80 percent in Detroit are for-profit. Yep. Yep. Damn. Um, and you know there are other places. New York has a cap on the number of charter schools okay. that can be authorized um, in the city, and then I think by district. Mm -hmm. um, and Detroit doesn't have that limitation, and Michigan doesn't have that limitation. So charters, like most of American education, depend highly on the locality and the state. Mm -hmm. um, and so Michigan and Detroit give us a worst case example, in part because of those two features. Um, and you know, I, we were talking over dinner. I'm a historian. I'm not going to venture certainty about the um, the shape of the most recent research on charter school test score impact, for example. Mm -hmm. But what I think is fair to generalize is that there's a lot of um, that the, the the results are complicated, and that it's not um, that charter school advocates have hoped for a really clear correlation between the presence of charters and increased test scores, because that's not just the measure that lots of people pay attention to, but it's often also the measure that authorizing entities, like whether you get to keep your charter, are going to pay attention to. And that that kind of unanimous message is definitely not there. And there's a lot of and there's a lot of evidence that charters are well distributed across the low quality schools as well as the high quality right. schools, just like public schools are well distributed across the low quality and the high quality. Mm -hmm. um, so you know the best um, maybe the the best uh, case that advocates can claim is that they represent in many cases an increase. Mm -hmm. And there are some recent studies I think coming out of um, Massachusetts that would suggest that they're pretty consistently somewhat higher performing, um, but it's not a simple win. Right. Right. And that, and here's my skepticism is that, is that the, the higher performing charters, it's also because many, and I would assume it depends on locality, as you put it, um, that the entry into these charters can be very selective, right? So they don't necessarily have to take any of the population, any and all the population that happens to live within a territorial swath, right? That they can mm -hmm. sort of uh, winnow that population to produce a student population of their liking, much like a private school. Right. So that could that also 
be a contributing factor to? It, it certainly could be. Um, I think, again, it depends tremendously on where you're looking. But there are, um, there are lots of ways that schools can influence who goes there, right? And um, one of them is by um, creating a set of processes that parents have to participate in to be able to apply. Right. And that means that people who don't have work flexibility or who don't have access to particular kinds of information aren't going to have access right. to that school. That's just one example. Um, but there are def there are other there's other kinds of selection that can happen. So if your child needs special education services, has an IEP, um, a school can signal that those services will be available or they can signal that they're concerned about being able to give those services, and that can all happen very informally, not just um, not just on an application form. Right. Um, and then there are ways that school charter schools, and like every other school, can come to have an identity that highlight that can um, exacerbate segregation. Right. So there's some places where New York City is one of these where much of the charter school draw is from is historically is from. Um, districts with large proportions of poor students and usually African-American and Latino students. Um, and those are the children who are most likely to find their way into charter schools. Mm -hmm. But there are other places, some gentrifying cities, some state contexts, where charters actually seem to be pulling more resourced and more likely to be white students. And so it, it had the, there's a tremendous range, and I would hesitate to characterize every place in any single way. But what's does seem to be pretty clear is that charters are um, the the findings of the UCLA uh, Civil Rights Project, which has tried to look at this pretty systematically, and definitely from a sort of desegregationist perspective, right. um, are that charters are at least as segregated as the very segregated American public school landscape. Has that been one of the things that the charters have tried to tout that they're going to help? school integration? I mean, I read another very, report. Very, very few. Yeah, okay. Um, okay. And this is where, you know, in, in the introduction, you commented on a sort of categorical opposition. Right, right. I'm not sure I'm categorically opposed. Mm -hmm, I don't mm -hmm. know. I mean, I'm still, and I, I, I think about this a lot in part because there, there are examples mm -hmm. of charter schools, some in Brooklyn, some in Rhode Island, some in other places I'm sure I'm not aware of, where educators and parents have looked at the the structure that a charter school offers and said, ah, this is actually a place for us to do something like consciously and carefully desegregate that hasn't been happening in the surrounding public school context. Right. And so educators who figure out, you know, how do we set up uh, admissions and recruitment practices that pull from multiple neighborhoods? How do we make that a, an explicit goal of recruiting kids, for example? Okay, But they're not regulated, right? Well, it depends so, on where you are. How do you regulate them? I mean, that's it shouldn't be one standard or. Well, we we don't. So <laughs> who regulates charter schools? It depends on where you are. <laughs> okay, so in New York, like so, so in Detroit, Detroit, basically yeah. nobody, right? And then right. and that's very deliberate, right? It's not just oh, it just so happens that that they had a they had a, a basically very concerted campaign, um, actually just this past summer, uh, where Governor Snyder sort of marshaled this legislation to say. Um, or so, sorry, that there was there was uh, counter legislation that being marshaled to say that there should be uh, gubernatorial oversight over the charters, what they're right. doing, and some sort of regulatory body, you know, some sort of commission we created. Betsy DeVos donated twenty five thousand dollars a day over the summer to the legislature to kill that bill, and it got killed. 
Part of wow. the one of the features of her confirmation hearings was the an unwillingness to to agree with a questioner. I'm now not remembering exactly who it was. Oh, it was Tim Kaine. Tim Kaine right? saying, yeah. should schools charter and other public schools right. be held to same the same account- accountability right. standards?" And she would not confirm. But she what's said the she's argument? for accountability. That's all right. she said. Generally. <laughs> <Right>. But what's <laughs> the argument to not be regulated? So that they have it harder. No, it, so the argument, it's not an argument not to be regulated. I think it's an argument to be differently regulated. Mm-hmm. Right. Which, again, in some state contexts, like Amit nicely described, means very little regulation. Right. Um, but there, a charter is a thing. Like, a charter is an agreement from an authorizing entity to give a group of people or an organization permission to run a school. Right. And to get money to do so. So, you know, and some authorizers are city school districts. And so then the question is to the city school board... Will you do you see enough performance over X or Y number of years to allow this institution to continue? Or do you say we don't? And then you pull the charter. Um, or in some cases, the authorizer is a state entity, the New York Board of Regents, for example, or a university. Some places universities can be charter school right. authorizers. So the argument is not no accountability. The argument is more autonomy right. in return for the argument is more likelihood that if you're not meeting the goals that you set out, you could be closed, right? So it's actually supposed to be more space to operate and higher stakes in some right. way. That's the logic. That doesn't mean, though, that it works that way in practice, right? Because what are the incentives to actually revoke a charter? That becomes a very conflictual situation. Yeah, for- I, wonder, I wonder what the rate of charter schools being, you know, having their funding taken away is probably not high. I don't normally hear of many funding. Uh, well, it's, usually, it's, it's usually in the midst of some scandal. Right. You know, right. that they're fixing the scores but not because, or, right. you know, everybody and their second cousin is on staff. They're all getting paid, you know, like no, the financial yeah. impropriety yeah. examples have seemed to draw a lot more yeah. immediate response than right. like, Just you know, you said you were going to yeah. make sure that you were serving ex- right. You know, right. kids well and you're not. Right. So the charter school advocates argument would be, well, you don't shut public schools either. You don't shut district schools either, right? So this is the this is where it gets tricky for me, and I think why the categorical opposition isn't so clear. Because but isn't pe- there the threat though of of shutting down? I mean, isn't that one of the the hammers that the charter school movement has that it's not quite them, but you know, with uh, not necessarily race to the top, or maybe even race to the top, but but certainly under No Child Left Behind, it was you know do well on the test or we're shutting you down and, you know, Mm -hmm. all the teachers getting fired and all all that kind of stuff. So that, that sort of looming threat is there, you know, so you public schools better perform. Otherwise you're going to be, you know, right. And yeah, part of the last 20 years has been this, this notion that rather than letting public institutions continue to exist, Mm -hmm. you, you use this kind, you use the accountability data and pressure to threaten closure, right? Right. And that that would be a way to incentivize better performance, right? right? I mean, in some ways it's the, that's not school choice, but that is a manifestation of the kind of market logic Mm -hmm. ideas that Mm -hmm. emerge in the 1950s that then produce school choice. So, so when Milton Friedman talks about, a criticism of government schools right. in the 1950s. He's he's in he's doing that in the middle of this sort of um, neoclassical economic model that mm-hmm. says the way you make things better is by having people compete with each other. Right, and so there's right. not very much. In some ways, the ideas are as present in the public system as they are in the charter. Hmm. The explicit choice 
sector. Okay, okay. But the bureaucracy moves much more slowly right. than that model would ever suggest. So do you see this all as, so since Milton Friedman's been brought up, that, that all kind of of a piece with, you know, just like the general privatization of, of uh, possibly public or once public services or possibly, you know, I, I'm thinking, so it's kind of the argument of the healthcare system that we have, right? That it's just mm -hmm. all sort of, you know, private health insurance and you'll compete and you'll maybe get a good price or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, there's no sort of guaranteed, you know, public healthcare, right? right. right. Um, government healthcare. Um, increasingly, it's it, prisons, right? That where, mm -hmm. and, you know, now that before, you know, there was all that reporting last year and the Obama administration put out the directive that we're not going to do the private prisons and yeah. they've already countermanded that the first day in office, Jeff Sessions. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff Sessions. Um, and so that sort of approach that, so basically what could arguably be, you know, civic duties of the state, you know, mm -hmm. that, that sort of, you know, public policy and public services uh, are being privatized. Is that part of Charters, or is there something? Because I read a counter to that, which mm -hmm. was that you know the original idea for charters, when it actually got on the ground, came from the American Federation of che Teachers, who had this sort of social justice model of it, yeah, and that it completely got like hijacked or something. So I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it's it's moved in a lot of different ways. Um, I think this is where the the school choice label overall is troublesome because it's not it's too general. So, you know, is there choice when in a school district, and this is what New York City does for all of its high school kids, you're, you want to go to a public school, you, have, you do not have a local geographically yeah. zoned high school in New York. You have to choose one. Right. That is district-wide, massive school choice, but it's entirely inside the public system, right? So that's one kind. Another kind is when you're talking about adding charter schools to that. So you're continuing to use taxpayer dollars that flow at least partly through a public system to then get to a more autonomously governed and possibly pri totally privately mm -hmm. governed, possibly even for-profit governed mm -hmm. structure. And then vouchers are different. And this is where I think the, the connection with, with Friedman, I mean, Friedman was talking right. in the 1950s about vouchers. Right. And so what vouchers do is take taxpayer dollars and don't channel them to a new organization. They channel them to a family. And they say, where will you take these dollars? Into the educational marketplace. Where will you choose to spend them? Um, and that's, that's, that's what's different about DeVos than the Obama sort of choice and competition model of the last 15 years. DeVos is interested in getting public dollars into private institutions. Um, and a lot of the charter school advocate people that I, who I've learned from and appreciate their work, they're actually, they see themselves as very different than that. Mm -hmm. They see themselves as trying to find spaces inside a publicly governed system to innovate, to have more autonomy, but they see themselves as really public actors. Would you describe them as public actors? Are they public? I mean, there's like this weird, like, because of the funding mechanism, they're publicly funded, but they have different rules from a classical public school. So, and. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, how does it, this is where, you know, we could get really into the weeds of the governance of this stuff. Let's but do it. I just try to think about, like, how does a parent communicate to a school that what's happening either works or isn't working, right? So if you are a, um, 
on the on the most long-standing American model, you had your kid in a public school and it wasn't working and you went to a board a school board meeting and you said the principal's terrible or this textbook choice in eighth grade is totally inappropriate. And you talk to people that you thought of as your democratically elected representatives. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe nobody voted in the school board election. Maybe it's an appointed school board. So it's not a it's not a very simple democratic model, but it mm -hmm. is you thought of it somehow as a democratic right. expression of your your rights, not just as a parent, but as a citizen. Um, so when so charters make that harder, because um, if, for example, your child is at a school that is part of a huge network, nonprofit network, but still big network, it has it's its own organization, it has its own board, the hiring decisions, the firing decisions, the curriculum decisions are all made by that organization. And really the only point at which you get to say it's not working to somebody who's an elected representative of yours is, in New York's case, your vote for the mayor. Mm -hmm. Right. Or your vote for the governor. And so that's a much more distant. I mean, you can, of course, complain to the principal. You can complain to the school's board, but you're not complaining as a citizen. You're complaining as a customer. Right. And the response is often so you can go elsewhere. Right. And the model is you take your kid and, and the resources that come with your kid to some other place. Um, so. So do I think that folks in those charter schools think of themselves as private or public actors? I think some of them, um, more the sort of community-generated charter schools and maybe more the ones that have are getting their authorization not from um, much more distant entities, but from like a local school board, for example. I think they really do. And they mm -hmm. think, you know, they think that they're people who, um, who have essentially said, and I have a lot of sympathy for this, like, this big system was not working for our kids. Right. And so we had to do something. And we didn't have enough time. The argument is often we didn't have enough time to wait for the system to get better. Um, so they feel themselves to be working with more autonomy in a fundamental public pursuit. But that is not a private charter school operator for profit. Yeah. Like that is that is not that, <laughs> you know, nor is it a, a voucher that claims to provide broad student choice right. when what it does actually is give you enough money to pay for probably a not very good low cost private school or Catholic school when the kind of good schools that Milton Friedman and other people are imagining cost right. 10 times as much as right, the voucher right. pays for. Right. So, so when they're doing these for-profits, is that something where they use government funding to launch the charter school and then eventually give it, stop taking it so they can become a private school? No. Or do they still take the... They're comfortable with the idea that if you're going to get, say, $9,000 a kid, you can figure out how to educate yeah. them at a minimally acceptable level for seven and you clear two per kid. Oh. Yeah. And then they get sort of angel wow. investors too, right? That these, that, right. That's, that's why... You know, it's not a coincidence that a lot of the big hedge fund managers are into this thing. Yeah, totally. It's very interesting that that many of the people who are pushing this, the financial backing, particularly of the for-profit model, right. are coming from are the sort of titans of the finance industry. But they never send their own kids to these schools. No, right? They send their kids to very different schools with without a sort of punishment model with small class sizes. I mean, a lot of these. Um, private schools, these empire private schools like KIPP and stuff like that have all these sort of like 
really like harsh disciplinary models, this training that they give their teachers about how to, you know, properly yell at a kid, you know, effectively and so on. Um, that would, you know, that would be a lawsuit <laughs> at a school where I teach. Yeah. At. You know, I mean, you talk to a kid in a, I would know, love to a, see what a, that a harsh looks like. tone, and you know, you'll be, you know, tossed right out. Right. So, I mean, but but yet, this is seen as what's sort of necessary for this population. That's right. you know, yeah, I don't know, poor and unruly. Um, but the the hedge fund interest in charters isn't just the for profits. I mean, the 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 mm. big money that supported. I think it's ideological too. I yes. think it's ideological yes. too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the you know big money that's behind um, the Harlem Children's Zone yeah, network right, of schools. Right. That's a lot of um, hedge fund as well as sort of people with tremendous wealth from their own companies. Right. Um, and the Success Academy folks, initial right. funders, were were big hedge fund people. Right. Why do people hate teachers so much? Ah. Uh, <laughs> Well, right. that's the other major. We've talked target. about this. The before, other major all, target. All, the root so is the hatred what, for teachers. That's what is where your, the song what comes have from. your theories been previously? I have my own theory, just from my personal uh, experiences. Good, good. A lot of teachers are terrible, and you grow up your whole life if you're not a kid that naturally gets it, which I think is the majority of the country. And if a teacher can't connect to you, or they're not trained to connect to you, they dismiss you. So by the time you get out of high school, maybe you go to college, maybe you don't. Your your memory of these some of these some of these teachers. I haven't been to school for a long time, but some of these teachers were just retired on the job. And then you look back and you're like, "Fuck, Miss Pachuda. Like all these people were terrible. Like they they didn't teach me. They were awful. I hate them. Um, you know. And then you had uh, at least where we went to school. Princeton public schools, which were great, but yeah, they we had did teachers. We had great teachers, but there were some in there that were horrible sure. that had like a seventy percent failure rate yeah. that somehow kept their jobs. And I think in a lot of the country where they they just can't connect to those kids in the bad neighborhoods, it's just they're in there because they have to be until that kid gets out or doesn't. And those people that go on to vote or to care about those things, they just don't have a good experience with education. So. That's my theory. Right. And then that, that, well, if you the experience is bad. Yeah. And if you wrap that up and then say, well, and it's and it's these darn uh, teachers unions that protect these, you know, teachers that are asleep on the to job an extent. and so on. No, but I mean that's kind of the argument, right? Is yeah. that is that um, the sort of the tenure regime, you know, keeps people who maybe shouldn't be in a job yeah. who are, you know, just in cruise control and you're just cruising downwards, obviously, you know, like yeah. that, that's, 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 it's, it's a bad thing. Therefore it makes all the sense in the world to come in, smash the unions, um, and sort of, you know, what is, what is the, what is the buzzword now? It's, um, uh, what is that word that you know, like Uber's doing and all that? You know, like they talk about in, oh, the, in, in the uh, in all these. It's like in all disrupting, the business schools, disrupting. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, right. disrupt education. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but right? but my, yeah. but also, you know, in my defense, I also I also think teachers should have to have a higher level of education, get paid twice as much. Mm. Like so, yeah. I am. I mean, and and yeah. and my, a lot of my sisters are teachers. My family, I am on the fence with the teachers union. But I think if you actually pay teachers what they deserve, it'd become more competitive and good teachers wouldn't get fired. So the, so I think that, I mean, that's you're working your way towards the core of the problem, which is that it's a very low status profession right. with incredibly outsized expectations. Right. And so you put those two things together and nobody can succeed at this. Yeah, like I have right. to raise your shitty kid on this crappy salary and you hate and, me. Well, and you're, <laughs> you're supposed to do, I mean, think, think historically about what we've expected schools to do, right? Mm -hmm. Schools are supposed to 
um, you know, by virtue of desegregation, solve the challenge of American seg- uh, racism. Right. Essentially, they're supposed to, um, you <laughs> know, make sure. Like an easy job. Right. They're supposed to fix the AIDS and drug crises of the 1990s right. through health ed and various kinds of you know, coercion campaigns. I mean, they're supposed to do everything. They're supposed to make sure you're employable. They're supposed to make sure that you are um, sort of moral, everything, everything. And we need so many of them that it's a mass occupation. Right. Right. So the whole, like, they should be prepared more and they should be paid more. That's hard because that would actually require investing massively in this public education project. Yeah, which, which I think we should do. I agree. But <laughs> just for the record. Historically. <laughs> right. Right. We haven't. And and we one of the ways that we've negotiated not doing that is to make sure that all those examples of teachers you gave are women. Right. right? So it's a it's a feminized profession. So our ideas of what constitutes a teacher, um, you know, who gets to um, you know, who's who's an appropriate teacher, who for all of those ideas are influenced by the fact that it's been historically women who've done this work. Yeah. So that wor- that work is is less valued and less professionalized. Oof. Because of I did that say reality. Mr. Judah. I could have said Mr. Humes. But I did but go with Judah. Did you go? You're right. Where you're right. You I did. I went yeah. for the yeah. the yeah. nasty woman. <laughs> it's true, but you're totally right. I've never even yeah. thought about that. But my recollection of my teachers in elementary school I loved and they were all women. But then the older I got uh, I just started hating all the teachers, but if well, I and could, there were more men in high school, so you probably hated them too. I did, right? Yeah. But my, the, you know, and by the way, I, I liked high school. I liked school. I'm just talking about like my it's outside a, the a box. A lot of people don't, and that's <laughs> yeah. I mean, my dad was my high school band teacher. Like, you know, I, I had great teachers, but I do think at the elementary level, you once you hit middle school is where you start to battle with the teachers because most kids like their third grade teacher or their second grade teacher, like. I had Miss Johnson. She was amazing. She sang guitar. She played guitar. We sang. Well, that's the other hard thing about the whole teaching profession is that you're literally taking kids as they're growing up and going through these wrenching transformations of of all sorts of things that they're going through. You know, middle school being particularly hard. You know, but you know, high school is not particularly easy either. Middle school is where you lose them, man. It's it's tough. Um, That's interesting. I think isn't it something like seventy percent of the profession still women. That, that sort that, of, it's yeah. much higher in, if you're talking about elementary school. Yeah, right, um, right. And somewhat lower for high school, yeah. but I think that's about right. And I yep. think in the private schools, um, at some of the private schools, at least in, in New York, um, it's nearly flipped hmm. that it's a heavily male-dominated uh, profession that, that many, uh, particularly in the upper schools, hmm. right, that, that, which is interesting, right? That, yeah. Why? That, I don't know, um, because these a lot of these uh, private schools are sort of you know prestige factories, and they you know create all sorts of social status, and um, and they pay higher, so they want men. They well, they they, they historically they've they paid fine. Um, I think they pay higher now because they're like in an arms race between one another. Right. They didn't always used to be like that necessarily, but it was just sort of a prestigious job to be at one of these schools or be at a you know a, a boarding school up in New England and so on. And it's heavily male, mm-hmm. um, and I think it you know it's something with the status or something like that. Wow, like that's, yeah, it's, it's yeah. weird. It's weird. Yeah, that's. It makes me think about how varied the private school landscape is, too, mm-hmm. right? So New York, you know, uber elite, incredibly right. wealthy, essentially, like, 
small liberal arts college, New York, <laughs> New York private schools right. are not the average American private school. Right. I grew up in Georgia. You could hang a sign out in your yard and say school and people could pay you tuition. And that, that's right. probably all right. the state right. needed to know. Um, and a lot of people who teach at small Christian academies or, you know, these are high, super unregulated places which is important for us to think about when we think about vouchers, right? So if they're public dollars, where do they go? And is there any sort of, what is the oversight and the um, regulation on where those dollars go? In the current shape of the private system, there wouldn't be much, right? No, I can't imagine it. So, yeah. Yep, (laughs) yeah. So some people, so it's, so some people imagine that what vouchers mean is access to the kinds of places you're describing, where they're like, you know, well-trained teachers and an arms race to get the very best ones. But the reality is that, um, especially with low dollar amount vouchers and the real shape of the American private school landscape, it's much more like, you know, Detroit charters. Right, <laughs> right. Lots of, unregu- lots of unregulated um, space for people to either do well or not. Wow. And we have this question about, you know, what do what do we as taxpayers and citizens want to ensure happens with our, our kids and our dollars that doesn't get answered in that scenario? Well, you had a question. Okay, I, I did have a question. All right, so given that you're a historian of education um, and, you know, critical historian, so I don't expect, like, some sort of, like, view of a halcyon past or anything, but were there moments in U.S. public education that you would sort of cannibalize for use now, right? That, that you know, given, basically the question is if you could do whatever you wanted, uh, We're asking you to write policy. Orga- organize the U.S. public education. Mm-hmm. Um, what might it look like? What would be? Oh. What would be? Or what would be a couple of things that you would suggest in fifteen words or less? Yes. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. So fifteen words or less. No, I'm joking. Um, I'm joking. Gotcha. So one way to think about this choice problem is that it tells parents that they should that their energy should be directed to picking a school. And that picking means that they choose either a business or a big nonprofit network or maybe a small community organization that's going to run the the kid's school. And that's their decision. But what's really um, important about, like, the Black Lives Matter education platform includes this statement about how what's needed is more community control. And it uses that phrase. And it's a fundamentally sort of democratic vision of what needs to happen in education, which is that community members and parents need to have authority in decision-making about their kids' schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, and what that platform is doing is pointing out that the choice focus, and certainly this would be true with vouchers, the choice focus gets in the way of that. Um, and so there are examples of, of um, lots of like local community activism to improve education that we could point to. None of them have easy success stories to offer, right? But the idea that people's energy should be directed towards democratic involvement in education 
seems the most important thing to me. And the market model doesn't encourage people to do that. Okay. So something that encourages civic engagement, basically, right? That that to see schools as a sort of participatory These are democracy. public institutions. Yeah. yeah. And we have, we care about them not just as consumers or parents. And the parent thing is transitory, right? But And the consumer thing is even more limited. Um, but we see them as institutions that we have responsibility to help make better. Um, and that in which, you know, parent knowledge and parent opinion and community opinion and community knowledge matters. And that, the you know, the, the way that a lot of charters operate and the way that a lot of private schools conceptualize themselves those things don't matter as much. Um, and that's, that's, for me, the kind of core question about what makes a school public. Like, to whom are they accountable? Mm -hmm. um, and, and how closely can the people who um, are connected to that institution try to help shape it? Okay. Sounds simple enough. It's complicated. <laughs> yeah. No, but I mean, but that, that's yeah. exactly the logic that has led yeah. people I respect to start charter schools. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so right. here, you know, for me, that's the right. challenge, right? Right. Charles Payne, an incredible historian of the American Civil Rights Movement, spoke at Teachers College a few months ago. And he said, you know, if the Panthers could have started a charter school, they would have. Like, they started Oakland Community School. Right. And if it could have been a charter school with state dollars, they would have. And that, so that's... That's the other argument, right? Not just the the um, restlessness and the need to fix something immediately for your own kids, right. but the reality that we we even as much as I want to say, hey, we've got to invest in this public system, we have to realize that it's a public system that's been deeply broken for generations of people, and it's sometimes too much of an act of faith to say, well, we'll fix it. Well, so. We have Betsy now, so we should be good. Yeah, no, it's right. not. Right? No, that's not what I said. <laughs> no, no, no. no. <laughs> anyway, we're out of time, unfortunately. Yeah. But uh, thank you so much for coming on. Yes. Happy it always, to be it here. always goes by so Thanks fast. Thanks for the burgers. I, I know. Much better to talk to you than you normally. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm yeah, like checking. Yeah, like, I, I, I get it. I get it. Check us out on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. You can be our 21st followers. <laughs> <laughs> no politics at dinner tables. Like Produced by Gene Baderoy. Uh, we'll see you next week. See you next week.